The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. President Trump tweeting this morning that he hopes that John Brennan, uh, in President Trump's words, the worst CIA director in our country's history, brings a lawsuit. It will be, then be very easy to get all of his records, texts, emails, and documents to show not only the poor job he did, but how he was involved with the Mueller rigged witch hunt. He won't sue. He went on further to talk about how everybody wants their security clearance and why it's important to strip certain people of it. Joining us now, I'm very pleased to say, is Admiral James Stavridis, a Bloomberg Opinion columnist, uh, also a retired U.S. Navy admiral and former military commando of NATO. He is the author of Sea Power, the History and Geopolitics of the World's Oceans. And he also is one of more than 175 former State Department and Pentagon officials who have added their names to a statement signed by national security officials criticizing President Trump's decision to revoke uh, security clearance to a number of people, including John Brennan. Admiral, thank you so much for joining us. What a pleasure, Lisa. I, I would love to just start with how important is it to the nation, aside from just a personal issue, uh, that there are these attacks on uh, former uh, intelligence officers and a revocation of their security clearance? I think it's a mistake from uh, really a very pragmatic point of view, Lisa, as follows. Um, when you have an important job, I was the Supreme Allied Commander of NATO. I had three million troops working for me, Afghanistan, Libya, the Balkans, Syria, piracy. When you have that kind of job, you need help. You need advice. And I was able to pick up the phone and call former Supreme Allied commanders, going all the way back to General Wes Clark, and get good advice from them because they still had security clearances. That's the idea of this. So if we strip away security clearances, um, it'll chill the ability of people in big, important jobs to reach to their predecessors, and I think that's a real mistake, leaving aside the politics of this, which are not very good, in addition to that very pragmatic point. What's morale like? What is morale like? I think morale is uh, concerned, would be the way I would use the term. Uh, from top to bottom, the national security uh, establishment is concerned about um, more than anything, the erratic nature of policy. You know, there are some things that President Trump is doing that make sense, going after the Islamic State, negotiating with Kim Jong-un, not uh, unleashing fire and fury. Um, but there are other things that we disagree with. It's that um, up and down, back and forth, the whipsaw effect of policy, and I think this feeds into that sense. And, Lisa, it's how it's viewed from overseas yeah. that ought to concern us. 
Admiral Cerides, uh, we just are getting word that Turkey is launching a World Trade Organization dispute against the U.S. Uh, regarding the steel and aluminum tariffs. I'm just wondering, I'd love to get your thoughts on Turkey as the former military commando of NATO and uh, your thoughts on the idea of Turkey leaving NATO or becoming less allied uh, with the United States going forward. What do you think about that? Yeah, three key points, Lisa. First, uh, Turkey has historically been a very strong member of the alliance and a very strong partner uh, to the United States and to the other 27 nations of the alliance. And I, I say that very practically, having seen Turkish troops, Turkish sailors, Turkish airmen fighting alongside NATO troops in Afghanistan, Libya, the Balkans on counter-piracy missions. They're very capable. Um, point two, under President Erdogan, they are drifting away from the alliance, and that ought to concern us very deeply. And that gets us to point three, which is the drift is getting closer and closer to Russia. We see uh, Turkey buying advanced air defense systems from Russia. We see a lot of collaboration between President Erdogan and President Putin. That ought to really concern us. Um, in terms of this particular dispute, which kind of centers around uh, a preacher who has been uh, unjustly incarcerated in Turkey, President Trump is correct to go after the Turks high and hard about that. But we ought to be doing that in a way that recognizes the fundamental importance of Turkey to the alliance. Um, I think we can get our way through this. The number one prescription is let's get an ambassador in Turkey. We don't have one there yet. We need to land this one diplomatically. Well, Admiral, I want to I want to go a little bit further with that. Let's say Russia does become much closer with Turkey. What's the potential consequence of that in a worst case scenario from your vantage point? Yeah, I think worst case, and it's probably approaching a 10 to 20 percent possibility, would be Turkey leaving the NATO alliance. Again, I don't predict that. Let's say it's an 80 to 90 percent they stay in. But I'm shocked I'm saying these words publicly. It's very concerning that we are at this pass. At the end of the day, I think the geopolitical balance will tip in favor of Turkey remaining in the alliance because of the economics. Russia really doesn't have that much to offer Turkey. Um, I am hopeful that President Erdogan will realize that in the time to come, and the geopolitics will outweigh the emotion of the moment. Admiral, just in about a minute, why would it be bad if Turkey left NATO? Uh, first of all, their capability. They have the second largest army in the alliance after the United States. Uh, secondly, their geopolitical position. They sit right on the border with the most troubled region. And thirdly, the symbology. We've never had a nation leave NATO. Uh, to have a big, important one like Turkey be the first would be disastrous for the alliance. Admiral James Stavridis, thank you so much for being with me. I wish we had uh, another hour to hear your, your thoughts because you come with such a rich perspective of what's going on both internationally as well as domestically. Admiral James Stavridis, Bloomberg Opinion columnist, retired U.S. Navy admiral and former military commando of NATO. Uh, he also is the author of the recent book, Sea Power, The History and Geopolitics of the World's Oceans, Shedding Light on a Really Important point, uh, which is the strategic importance of oceans and how that could be changing. Well, 
Semiconductor shares have been really taking a blow on the head again and again in the past few sessions. And we could see that again today. NVIDIA shares leading the way down nearly 2% declines following a nearly 5% decline on Friday. The question is why? And is it justified? Is this just a Bitcoin freakout or is this something deeper? And I'm so happy that we have David Garrity here with us. He's chief executive of GVA Research based in Brooklyn. Actually, no, he moved. He moved to Manhattan and he is here in our 1130 studios uh, in New York City right now. David, what do you think is the significance of the recent declines that we've seen in the uh, semiconductor companies? Well, I think when you look at the global economy and you look at the important sectors of it, technology has certainly become more important as a sector over time. Much as people have talked about the decrease or decline in copper prices since early June by about 19% as being indicative of an industrial economy slowdown, we take the view that when you look at semiconductors, there's a technology sector related slowdown, which certainly is being affected by the deceleration in the economy in China because of the expected impact around some of these tariffs that we've been seeing. And so from that standpoint, um, you know, we tend to look at semiconductors as being an economically sensitive commodity category, albeit of a highly finished kind. So are you are you saying that the weakness that we've seen of late suggests or points to either a slowdown in tech consumption broadly or you know specifically a slowdown in the broader Chinese economy? We would see it as being a slowdown clearly of tech consumption and would argue that perhaps in this case this is a slowdown in tech consumption that's being seen more specifically perhaps in the greater China markets or those markets that would be affected by tariffs. There may be some spillover depending upon how the tariffs have unfolded in other geographic areas outside of China because clearly what the current U.S. administration has been doing has been basically going after any and all uh, global trading partners with tariffs being imposed. All of this has created economic uncertainty. All this arguably is serving to suppress consumption or demand. Really interesting. It sort of uh, raises a lot of questions about the smartphone supercycle, uh, as well as car production. I mean, all the things that chips are in really it raises some questions for and definitely is an area to watch. But since we're in China, let's talk about Google going to China. They made a decision in 2010 not to have their search engine in that country because of some of the sanctions and the things that they would have to uh, follow, the protocol they'd have to follow with censorship. Now they're rethinking that decision. What gives? What a difference eight years makes. Right? What a difference that the rise of Baidu and other sort of China national tech champions has had upon Google. And the fact that there seems to have been the decision made internally with Google that while the mantra might have been starting off to do no evil, well, everything has a price. And the fact is, at the end of the day, Google's business model is based upon tracking users and so gathering data. And when it comes to looking at uh, state-sponsored surveillance of populations, you know, Google is essentially saying, well, shucks, this is something that we're doing in effect for ourselves already. So, you know, to the extent that perhaps this is something that might be applicable in the case of meeting the demands of a client such as the Chinese state, um, it may not necessarily be all that wide a gap to bridge. 
In other words, they're okay with certain censorships that they weren't okay with in 2010 because the business opportunity is too great for them to ignore. There is that, and there's also the fact that Google says we're already in a position to be able to track individuals' online activities and behaviors. And if what the client wants to do is to you know, put some filters on this... The client being the Chinese government. The client being the Chinese government in this case because there's significant Chinese ownership, Chinese government ownership in the Chinese internet. And from the standpoint that the client wishes to put these filters in place, well, you know, who's Google to say no? I mean, certainly this falls in part and parcel in some respects with kind of the debate that's been going on within social media is that, you know, what really constitutes speech? And, you know, should we be in the business of arbitrating what speech is or is not to be? So talking about tracking clients, we were talking when you came in today about Netflix and how there's sort of this conundrum facing a number of social media companies and others in the tech world, including Netflix, of how much to crack down on fuzzy numbers about users and subscribers versus how much to monetize uh, what you have. And Netflix, you were saying, has a lot of subscribers who share their passwords with other people, meaning that if Netflix were to crack down, they could get a lot more revenue. So why wouldn't they? Can you lay out the issue? Right. I mean, the estimates are that, you know, Netflix has lost revenue from account sharing is something in the order of about $500 million a year. So this, for a company like Netflix, given their losses, you know, could be a substantial benefit from a um, financial performance perspective. Looking at this problem from a demographic perspective, we see that users who are baby boomers in terms of that demographic cohort, um, according to recent surveys, you know, might share, 13% of them might share um, account information. And But when you get to a younger demographic, say under 21, uh, that number actually goes from 13% up to 42. The problem is, is that as the baby boomers age out, you're left with a user base who has an expectation that content is going to be free. The question here is, this might represent something of a threat in terms of the business models of these companies uh, unless they can do something to promote better consumer behavior around paying for the content that's being consumed. So what's the argument on the other side for why Netflix would want to juice their numbers in the short term in order to do what? Get more advertising? I mean, do they have that? Yeah, no, I mean, the issue is if Netflix wishes to maintain a model that does not necessarily rely upon advertising, then you need to have in place a far more stringent regime, if you will, from the standpoint of making sure that, you know, uh, account information is not being shared and that you're actually being able to realize the revenue per user uh, that you should be doing under the subscription model. And that's where, um, and we, we have literally like 20 seconds left, but we were talking earlier about how blockchain uh, is sort of going to play a role eventually in this so that they can track better. Yeah, well, there will be an available use of private blockchains to do a better job in terms of tying consumers and content consumption. So from the standpoint of sharing, uh, look for decentralized technology to be used to try to address this problem. David Garrity, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for coming in today. Thank you. David Garrity is chief executive of GVA Research, talking all things tech. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum, powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, 
influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Also helping us move forward is Damian Sassauer, fixed income strategist with Bloomberg Intelligence. He brings us intelligence, as always, on the developing world with uh, decades of experience in this area. Damian, it is all about Venezuela this morning. <laughs> what are they doing? 95% devaluation in the Bolivar. What's the purpose? I mean, are they basically just trying to uh, absolutely remove this instrument from being relevant in any way, shape, or form? Yes, they are. <laughs> no, I mean, this conjures images of the 1983 Black Friday that kind of led to the rise of Hugo Chavez. Um, it's when Campins, the former president, devalued the boulevard by something on the order of 22%. And there was rioting in the streets, and there was bloodshed, and, and, and here we are. But look, I mean, what's really interesting is over the weekend, we saw uh, Mauricio Macri, the president of Argentina, uh, together with uh, Chile, Paraguay, and Colombia come out and say that they might actually be taking um, Maduro to the ICC to The Hague. Yes. Yeah, um, and, and I think that's kind of interesting because it's really the first evidence we're seeing that it's not a unilateral US, you know, uh, focused measure to kind of get, you know, Venezuela to buckle and the Maduro regime to buckle. It's really now be broad, extending beyond just the US into Latin America. And that's the first evidence of it. And just to be clear, what they were saying is that the Maduro administration uh, has committed crimes against humanity. Yes. And they're trying to get The Hague to come in and and rule on that, what would that do to the Maduro administration? I mean, would that potentially Ooh. cause some sort of or ignite some sort of regime change, or is it sort of a cosmetic? You know, we all hate you now. Right. So the whispers there are that Maduro's in power because the military protects him, and because the generals and party. I, I mean, you know, part of his regime, the top lieutenants, the top generals, they're all kind of, in, you know, they've got his back, so to speak. And and you know, by you know, if you take in conjunction the ninety-five percent devaluation of the Bolivar last week, the removal of some of the fuel subsidies and some of the other measures that they're taking, i.e., linking their currency to the petro, which is a cryptocurrency that's linked to uh, Venezuela crude oil exports. That has been entirely discredited. <laughs> yes. Abs yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. And the fact that it's now delinquent on what, $6.1 billion of, of bonds uh, for, with U.S. dollar creditors. I mean, it, it all kind of paints a really, a really kind of unnerving picture. One that kind of, you know, I, I think they're trying to get, uh, you know, it, it, it shows that they're very vulnerable. Venezuela is very vulnerable. And, um, and they've got some real issues ahead of them. And hopefully the ICC can iron this out and sort of add some pressure and get, uh, and get a regime change. One thing that I find interesting, both about uh, what we're seeing in Venezuela as well as Turkey, is where the international help is coming from. I mean, Turkey obviously has seen a dramatic devaluation of their currency, of the lira, which is continuing today. It's losing value against the dollar. Um, interesting that Russia and China have emerged as lenders to both of these yeah. nations at some point or other. And I'm wondering, I mean, I don't know if China has actually stepped in at this point to Turkey, but certainly China has been a big lender to Venezuela. What is this sort of, I don't know, demonstrating as far as a sea change, a shift in China and Turkey uh, and Russia lending to developing markets? Yeah, you're going down a path that a lot of people are now whispering behind closed doors, the fact that, you know, m m the U.S. dollar strength has always been sort of the axe that kind of, you know, slits the throat, so to speak, of emerging market assets. And so diversifying your currency exposure, you know, we all talk about the broad trade-weighted real U.S. dollar, which is basically a basket of currencies and how they perform relative to the dollar and how that's done. And 
I think what we're seeing here is, you know, China and Russia trying to step in and be that lender of last resort to some of these uh, some of these economies that really need assistance, you know, and, and that, that, whose currencies have really declined and devalued relative to the dollar. Whether or not, um, you know, that's acceptable to the countries themselves and their populace, whether or not, you know, that doesn't force us to now put China and Russia in the same bucket as them, which obviously we started to do, right? We have sanctions against Russia. We are putting tariffs against China. So maybe they feel, you know, what what more do we have to lose? But I think in China's case, this is really quite interesting because China's been lending to, you know, emerging economies for, for some time now. And, you know, maybe they're kind of trying to get the you know the renminbi out there and into the reserves of a lot of these countries and that might you know kind of save them in the long run and allow them to issue more debt to reach their own gdp growth targets which are being scaled back as we speak so we'll see how it all kind of shakes loose i think it's just you know quite interesting you know if you look at just what happened over the weekend you look at venezuela you look at turkey i mean um you know and you look at the squeeze which is now turned into a dollar shortage yeah. it's just going to be really painful for a lot of creditors Damien Sassauer, always wonderful to hear from you. Damien Sassauer is fixed income strategist focusing on developing markets for Bloomberg Intelligence. Certainly an important thing to watch. Where are some of these developing markets that are that are currently in a crisis situation? Where are they getting their money? This is something we will continue to watch. The plunge in Bitcoin this year has been precipitous. It's hard to overstate it. It started the year at more than $13,000 per Bitcoin, now trading $6,446. The question is, what does this do to investments in blockchain, which has been traditionally thought of as the mainstay and sort of the value uh, behind this asset? Joining us now, we're really happy to say, is Ron Quaranta, chairman of the Wall Street Blockchain Alliance. And Ron, I'm wondering, do you watch the uh, price action in, in Bitcoin and Ether, which has actually plunged more? We do. And thanks for having me, Lisa. It's good to see you again. Um, really focusing on the price action that we see, we have a crypto asset working group and we have this conversation fairly regularly within the WSBA. Um, we try to separate what's the speculative fervor around some of the price action that we're seeing in any particular day. You can see 10 to 15% price moves. Um, certainly from the peaks, we're see, we've seen quite a bit of decline in prices. Um, we suspect that's a bit of froth coming out of the market. There are some fundamental technical things that we look at as well. So for example, some of those ICOs that were funded with Ether as they become more cash strapped and they unload that Ether, that clearly puts downward pressure on prices. But none of that changes the dynamic of what we're seeing as the evolution of leveraging blockchain technology across global financial markets uh, and things like supply chain, for example. All right, so you're still seeing investments uh, made by big Wall Street firms and beyond in blockchain. There's no sort of knock-on effect from this? Yeah, I mean, I think the knock-on effect really is indicative of the challenges that the industry is having involving, uh, evolving given institutional interests. So, for example, I think it was J.P. Morgan and... Uh, Bank of America recently invested, uh, sorry, Goldman Sachs recently invested in a company called Axoni. Um, I think it was reported by Bloomberg and it was really focusing on building the financial markets infrastructure and tools associated with engaging cryptocurrencies and crypto assets. Well, I guess that one, uh, right now I'm looking at NVIDIA shares. They're down one and a half percent, down nearly 5% on Friday. Mm -hmm. uh, and NVIDIA reported earnings. The big question mark was that they said that their sales were down when it came to uh, people who are looking to mine 
cryptocurrencies. And that had been a big driver of certain sales in a small segment. And that was weighed down. And I guess I'm trying to understand, especially at a time when blockchain investments haven't borne fruit for a lot of places the way that they've been looking for. Um, do you view this as sort of the decline of, of seeing blockchain as sort of the holy grail? Or do you think that this is just sort of a right-sizing of expectations? I think it's more of the right-sizing of expectations. I, I don't Both from the blockchain as a technology solution perspective, as well as cryptocurrency hype, um, overblown expectations by far. So when you look at the NVIDIA example, the economics of mining don't make sense below a certain price point. And when you look at 40, 50, 60% drops in things like Bitcoin, it becomes a challenge to sell those chips. When Bitcoin was approaching $20,000, people couldn't get those chips fast enough. So again, in our mind, this is a right-sizing of the expectations across the technology landscape. It's a right-sizing of the expectations from a almost an investment landscape perspective looking at cryptocurrencies. And that ultimately is good for the evolution of this space. What's the mood like among providers of blockchain technology right now? Yeah, it's a lot of the mood in the conversations that we have is um, biding time and patience to develop these ecosystems. There's a lot of pressure around why isn't blockchain delivering on some of these uh, promised solutions? Why aren't cryptocurrencies achieving the price points that everyone thought they would? And the providers who are doing the day-to-day -day work, really putting together solutions, and it's big and small firms, um, really are working to expand that ecosystem and make it make sense over time. And so they're fighting the idea of how do we challenge these expectations of blockchain to solve all problems immediately versus it's going to take time to evolve the space. What is the ecosystem that's necessary for blockchain? Yeah, there are a couple of things that are really important. And, and I'll use something like supply chain as an example. And recently, um, IBM, I think they have now something over 90 firms involved in their supply chain uh, blockchain solution. It's acceptance and education. We always go back to the education comment, which is how do you get firms that would participate to understand the dynamics of what blockchain accomplishes for them, wow, what the efficiencies are associated with it. And then it's the challenge of interoperability and integration. How do you take a blockchain solution and integrate it into how they do what they do currently? And that's a lot of work. That's a lot of work from the provider perspective. Look at an IBM, for example. It's a lot of work for those new firms that would want to leverage blockchain technology. And the idea here, just to to move beyond using blockchain as sort of like a, a word of jargon where people like, you know, if you've got a problem, you've got a problem with your son, blockchain. Um, <laughs> but that basically the idea is being able to track either products, payments, whatever else uh, in real time and in a sort of in unalterable format from place to place. Is that, am I characterizing this correctly? Yeah, absolutely. So it's really the ability to have that immutable audit trail of data that is um, perpetually tied to specific solutions, again, like supply chain. Um, they're doing likewise in food. They're certainly looking at, uh, at things in financial markets to track things, again, like syndicated loans and other instruments. Um, and also the security associated with that data and the ability to disintermediate the costs associated with trusts between parties. There's a lot of cost savings that happens there. Ron Quaranta, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. A really pertinent topic right now. Ron Quaranta, chairman of the Wall Street Blockchain Alliance. Uh, Bitcoin uh, certainly having quite a swoon, more than half its value being erased so far this year. And NVIDIA uh, is set to unroll uh, some products in the near future. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. 
I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.